Okay, open your Bibles up to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. And the title of our sermon today and actually our series for the next three weeks will be God of the Impossible. Mark chapter 10. Have you ever had a time when you faced a shocking event or maybe a couple events in a row? Maybe there was a a diagnosis Maybe you were in an accident, and so the next few days and weeks were filled with new difficulties and doctors and some surprises. Maybe you moved to a new place, maybe you got a new job, and so there were some unknown experiences, unknown factors. Today is the one-year anniversary of my first time preaching here at Lighthouse, so, so there you go. Thank you. But there was, you know, there's some new experiences we faced out here. And one was lack of rain. And I'm predicting this year will be no rain. Although last year that was, that was predicted and there was a lot of rain. And maybe if you're a new mother, your first time having a baby, you realize there's some experiences you didn't think would happen to you. So there are times in our lives when, when our world can be flipped upside down and we can experience Uh, different situations that shock us. And I think that's where the disciples found themselves here in Mark chapter 10. And they had left all, they were following Jesus, but they had some expectations. They had some plans of how they thought things would work out. And then starting in Mark 8, Jesus says that he's going to suffer, he's going to die, and then something about resurrection, and he says it again in Mark 9. He says it again the end of Mark 10, which was a little bit of a surprise to them. And then Jesus confronts them in Mark 9, and that's always kind of a surprise when someone does that. You don't expect that. And then Mark 10 here, he starts teaching about marriage and divorce, and he teaches something that is, is somewhat shocking to them because rabbis didn't teach this. And basically it was, once you marry the person, you're married for life, and there's no way to get out of it. It's a covenant for life. In fact, you can hear the shock of the disciples if you read the parallel passage in Mark or Matthew 19.10. The disciples said, the Bible says, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. In other words, if we don't have an out of divorce, then maybe I shouldn't even get married. So it's kind of a shock. What's going on here? And then, in the passage we're going to look at today, in verses 13 through 31... We see three times where the disciples are astonished. They're shocked about something Jesus taught. And what was it that they were shocked about? We're going to see they were shocked really about how they believed a person entered into God's presence. And how Jesus taught there's no possible way that you can enter into his presence By your own effort. So Mark chapter 10 verses 13 through 31. We're going to see three times where Jesus states truth. Gives truth facts. Facts of truth. And then he gives three illustrations. Disciples and all the people at that time. And even really frankly in our world too. Thought there was some kind of personal merit. 
that would help them gain eternal life. And so if you're a sincere person, surely that that gives you something to be able to enter God's presence. Or if you follow the Ten Commandments or you're a good person, doesn't that allow you to enter into God's presence? Or if you're rich, that shows you're blessed by God, which means probably it means you're going to heaven. That was the thinking they had. And Jesus says, no, actually, it's impossible for you to offer anything to God that would be of any value to him to gain access to his heaven. So it's impossible for a person by their own effort to gain eternal life. And so those listening to him, the disciples were going, what? They were astonished. And maybe some of you are in here. Maybe you thought, well, I thought that's what the Bible taught. What's well, not? So Jesus gives three shocking facts about the impossibility of having eternal life. So I'm just going to give you the outline for this week and next week all up here. You can open up your bulletin. If you want to, you can write it down there. It's not written down anywhere, so you got to write it down yourself. But we're going to look at the first shocking fact today, and then we'll look at the other two the next two weeks. In verses 13 through 16, Jesus taught that eternal life is impossible for any person unless you come to him like a helpless child. And then we'll see in verses 17 through 22, he taught that it's impossible unless you turn from going your own way. And then verses 23 through 31, that it's impossible to have eternal life unless you completely surrender to Jesus' saving power. So as we read through this passage, starting in verse 13, I want you to notice the three statements of fact relating to the impossibility of earning eternal life. And then... Notice the three illustrations Jesus gives here. If you're able to, would you stand with me as we read Mark chapter 10, verse 13 through 31. I'll read as you follow along. Verse 13, and they were bringing children to him that he might touch them or his hands on them to pray. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant, and he said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the children, the kingdom of God. Now we're going to see the first statement of truth here. Verse 15, Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom like a child shall not enter it. Verse 16, We see the illustration. He took them in his arms and he blessed them, laying his hands on them. Verse 17. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these things have I kept from my youth. You can hear the pride in there, right? And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go and sell all you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. So we'll see this next statement of truth here is that you can't have eternal life unless you give up your own efforts to try to gain eternal life. Verse 22. The rich man wasn't willing to do that. Verse 22. The dis- disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus, 
looked around and said to his disciples, so here's a statement of fact, how difficult will it be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them, children, how difficult is it to enter the kingdom of God? So here's the next illustration. It's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. So Jesus uses this illustration, then verse 26, and they were exceedingly astonished. So shock upon shock upon shock. And he said to them, they said, who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, it's impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. That's the third statement of fact. Peter began to say to him, see, he began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, truly, I say to you, so the third statement of fact, there is no one who has left house and brothers or sisters or mothers or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions in the age to come eternal life. What's the conclusion? Be shocked by this. Many who are first or who think they're the ones that are going to get in the kingdom, will be last. They won't. And the last will be first. Let's pray. Father, this is a very powerful text, because this text of Scripture presents the power of God. And I pray this morning that we, as, as your creatures, as, your, as people created in your image, that we will understand this text and the need we have for you and the helpless condition in which we find ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you be seated? The first shocking fact taught in our text today is it's impossible for you to have eternal life unless you come to Jesus like a helpless child. The setting starts in a, in a house here, in a home. Someone who was, was probably sympathetic to Jesus. You can see that in verse 10. The Bible says, and in the house, the disciples asked. So they're in some kind of home here. And then he goes from, he teaches then on marriage to his disciples. And he goes from teaching on marriage to teaching on children. And using the topic of children to illustrate how a person gains access to heaven. So I went through all this because I want you to see the progression of thought here. The most important topic that Jesus taught on was redemption, was salvation, or how does a person get to be able to go to heaven and have their sins forgiven? And so what you see here is Jesus is, is moving towards that point. And so I think probably the topic of marriage pricked a lot of the hearts of the people around them because they realized how sinful they were. And then he goes to talking about children, and he uses that as a way to teach them that we must approach God as helpless creatures and trust him in simple faith. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to focus first upon the illustration that Jesus used of children and then show how he used that to help us to understand God's view of how a person enters into his presence. So we're going to really first look at a theology of children as presented by Jesus. So what was Jesus' view of children? He uses children as an illustration, but what was his view of children? 
So this is kind of a, an outline within an outline, okay? And so we're going to look at four views Jesus had of children. First of all, Jesus valued children. Or as the song says, Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world. There we go. Some of you learned that growing up. That's good. So look down in verse number 13. The Bible says, and they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the idea is that he would put his hands on them and pray a prayer of blessing over them. The Greek word for children here is just the general term for young children. If you go over to Luke and look at the parallel account there, you can see the word that that is used there of children that, that Luke uses is the word infant. So probably what we're speaking about here, we're talking about children who are are a one, two, three-year-olds, okay? So in church, sometimes we bring children up and we dedicate them to the Lord. doesn't do anything for them as far as doesn't promise them eternal life or anything like that, but we just pray for them. Usually it's around that age. In fact, that's where a lot of uh, churches get that idea of dedicating them to the Lord. Jesus prayed over these children and we pray over children. And so, so you have this age right here. So think about that age group when you're thinking about these children here. And this is just a wonderful picture of Jesus. I mean, imagine these little toddlers like waddling to him, maybe someone crawling, you know, doing the the army shuffle, right? Or maybe the one that just rolls over to him or parents hand him to him. And just, just think of that beautiful scene of Jesus sitting in this house and these children coming to him. What a beautiful act of love by Jesus to children. But the disciples don't think so, do they? Look down in verse 13. And the disciples rebuked them. And why was that? Well, we talked about this a few weeks ago. I believe there's probably a couple of reasons. One is they probably thought Jesus didn't have time for the children. They could have been influenced by their culture. Remember we said last, a couple weeks ago in Mark chapter 9, that, that the culture of the Roman Greco culture of the first century did not value children, especially this age of children. In fact, look over in Mark chapter 9, verse Verse 36, should be the next page over there. And, and this is when Jesus, the Bible says in verse 36, he took a child and put them in the midst of them. So he's using a child as an illustration again. Taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. And if you want to know what that means, go back to that message. But if you remember that act... And those words of Jesus elevated the worth of children in front of those disciples. Because in that society, they viewed, the Roman Greco culture viewed children, and particularly infants and toddlers, as as unproductive burdens on society. You know, we're like, oh, they're so little, they're so cute. You know, we make little rooms just for children. So we have a, we value children in our society. Frankly, a lot of that has been influenced, probably most of it has been influenced by the spread of Christianity. But at this time, that was not the case with children. They were a burden. They were a necessary liability. But children under the age of five, by many, were not even seen as having the dignity of personhood. And so and one example of this is when, in the Roman society, when a, a, a woman gave birth to a child, the midwife would take the baby, would put the baby on the ground, and the father would come in, and if the father wanted to keep the baby, then the father would pick the baby up. If he didn't, he would turn around and walk out the door. 
And that would signal to the midwife to take the baby out to the trash heap outside the city. They would put the baby out there. It's called exposing the baby. The baby would either die out there or slave traders would come on and they would take that and that would be a slave. That's called exposing children. And that's what they did at that time. It's kind of a, a ancient form of abortion and and, and, and um, infanticide. Sorry, I almost said that wrong. Infanticide. It's really sad, but I think it's probably not much different than what's going on today in our culture, in our American culture here. And the view of this society was that children were, were of no worth, especially those who are infants. Unless, of course, there was the male heir, and then you had to take care of that one, you know. But if, especially if you were a female or if you had some kind of problem or something like that, you were not valued very much. Most likely, if you had, a, had some kind of deformity, you were, you were killed. So they saw cheat, and, and I would say this, that in the Jewish culture, generally that wasn't the case. They did value children, but there was an influence from the culture upon them, and they had to experience that. And there's probably some of that taking place here, where, where the disciples are going, oh, no, these children are just, get them out of our way. They're a nuisance. They're a waste of Jesus' time. Jesus doesn't care about these little things. Come on, get them out of here. And so the disciples rebuked them, but look at verse 14, what Jesus says. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. He was angry, righteously angry. But why? Because Jesus, when he saw those little ones, he saw humans that were created in his image, in the image of God. Right? That's why each person has dignity and worth, because we as humans are created in the image of God. And in Jesus' view, the value of life is not recognized in one's ability or or in productivity of that life. Oh, that life's going to be a real productive life. That life's not, so it's not worth anything. That's not Jesus' view. In fact, he viewed them as valuable because he created them in his image. And by rejecting these children, the disciples were opposing Jesus' righteous values that valued the worth and dignity that that valued the worth and dignity of each person no matter how small one of the favorite stories that i love to read is dr seuss's horton here's a who you know that one remember the little the phrase in there i think is is actually uh, probably a reflection of god's values maybe by accident but a person's a person no matter how small and isn't that true of children as well jesus values and loves children because he loves people. So Jesus loves and values children. And so in Jesus' view, each child has worth and significance in the eyes of God. And the truth is, our society valued that more at one time. Of course, there was a time before that where they didn't value it. They valued it less. And as the Christian culture influences our society, there is an effect upon it. And, 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 that, and our society has positively affected, or I should say Christianity has, has at times positively affected our our culture, but that's eroding. That's going away now. And, some, and the truth is, in our society, we're losing that perspective of, of valuing human life. I think even within the church, we can lose the value of, of children and those who are weak. So first, I just want to think about our society. Many people, and I'm saying something probably most of us agree with, but I think it's something for us to remember. And I think you as children, I want you to grasp onto this. 
There's many people in our society that consider the, the small, wiggly, unborn baby in the womb as not having the dignity of personhood. They don't even consider that to be a human, even though biologically and scientifically obviously is. But what they consider is that baby is only valuable if the mother gives birth and thinks that human has worth, and or if that baby will be productive. So in other words, if that baby has some kind of difficulty or, or for instance, Down syndrome or something like that, or the baby has features the parent doesn't desire, then that baby doesn't have worth, which is probably why some studies say between 67 and 90% of unborn children in America diagnosed with Down syndrome are killed, are aborted. And so, and so people don't value those children, and they decide they don't have value and oppose God's values. And I think probably most of us in our hearts, and I say most of us in our society, in our hearts, know that that little small human is a human, right? Our society tries to soothe its conscience with excuses. In fact, 14 years ago, September 1st today, 14 years ago, Dana was pregnant. She was 25 weeks along, almost a couple of days away from being 26 weeks. So for some of you guys in here, you're like, what does that mean? Okay, like the average pregnancy, you're supposed to be 40 weeks. Okay, so she's in the second trimester. Is that how you say it? Yep, second trimester. And at 26 weeks in one day on September 4th, our first daughter was born. So this is her birthday this week. Happy birthday, Isabel. There you go. What can you say? I don't know if that's a birthday present right there or a curse, but either way, we'll see what she says when she gets older. But this is her right here. And what I want to do is show this to you because, because she was about one pound, seven ounces at this point. You can't really tell. Like her, her head was the size of a, of a tennis ball. Um, there, you know, you can see her look peeking out there. It's kind of cute. And... And it was interesting because I remember standing by her incubator there. And, of course, we didn't know if she was going to live or die. Um, and, well, it's kind of cheering you up to think about this. But, and she was prodded and she was poked. She struggled. She winced. And while I was sitting there, I picked up a medical journal published in August of 2005. So a month before. And it was the Journal of American Medical Association. And it said this. Let me quote it. Evidence regarding the capacity for fetal pain is limited, but indicates that fetal perception of pain is unlikely before the third trimester. Okay? And the third trimester begins at about 27 to 28 weeks. So she's about a week or two away from this. And I'm seeing them like poker and her going, ow, like that, and crying. And how ridiculous was it for me to stand next to a newborn and they're saying she doesn't experience pain, therefore we can rip her limbs out. When she's in the womb. Like, isn't that ridiculous? Like, but they're medical experts. So, of course, they know better. But I'm a parent staying next to a child who is one of those children that they think is okay to get rid of. My, this is not a political thing, okay? This is a God values thing. Of course, you go to, you go to factcheck.org. You can find this information there. And they are giving these facts to support abortion. So... But their facts are not true to reality. And they stand in opposition to God's word. And so you might be in here and you might have had an abortion. And if you had, we love you. 
There's forgiveness in Christ. God loves you, and we want to help you. If you're in here and you're considering that, or you have a time in your life, please come talk to us. But I want you to know, most importantly, this, that God values the little children. He loves them. And so the Bible says, thou didst knit me together in my mother's womb. Did he who made me in the womb, did he, did not he who made me in the womb make him? And did not one fashion us in the womb? God is a part of that integral work in there. And as Christians, we must urge our country and mothers to value those babies in the womb. They're created in his image. And that's why we partner with Community Pregnancy Clinic. It's a great place to go to get resources on this, to really get help and counseling to help those mothers. And um, so let me encourage you to look them up, support them, go volunteer for them, help them out. They're giving the love of Christ to mothers and to babies. I'm afraid, though, in the American church, though, we also can be tempted and sometimes don't value children like we should. And in the church, like our society, sometimes we, we think about children, frankly, sometimes just a household commodity, right? So we think about children, like, how many children should I have? Or we think about, okay, what, what, are, what are my children like? You know, what, why, why do I have them? And we kind of sometimes can think of them like a car, right? Like, how many cars should we have? Can we afford them so I can still live the life of freedom I want? And my point isn't to say you should do this or that or this. My point is to say this. Children are a gift of God. They actually are a blessing from God. And we shouldn't treat them as some other household commodity we have. We should treat them as God views them. And that is they are a blessing. And we should not speak of them as if they're a burden. Whether we have them or don't have them. So children are a blessing, not a burden. The Bible says, behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. It's a gift from God to us. So they're not yours. They're God's. And the fruit of the womb is actually a reward, is a reward. So children are given to parents. And why did God give those wonderful gifts, even though sometimes mothers say, are they really that wonderful? Yes, they are. Why did he give them to us? And fathers say that too, by the way. (laughs) It's children are given to parents so we can raise them up in Christ to be disciples of Christ. And let me say this, the greatest influence of discipleship, the greatest influence of discipleship is that of a parent who prayerfully and intentionally disciples his or her children. That's the potential, your potential to have the greatest impact upon a person is being a parent, for good or for bad, right? That leads us to the next point, and that is Jesus urged children's discipleship. Jesus urged children's discipleship. Look down at verse 14. And when Jesus saw it, That is the disciples saying, get away. He was indignant and he said to them, let the children come to me. This word let is very interesting. It's a aorist imperative. Imperative means it's a command. So Jesus was saying, stop preventing them. And then it's also an aorist, which means he's saying right now. So right now, stop it. It's like, cut it out, guys. And then he says, let the children come to me. And notice that word come right there. Now you see it in English, but if you were to be able to read the Greek there, you would see that that word in Greek is actually the same one back in Mark 8:34. So just flip back one page to Mark 8:34, and this is the great call of Jesus to be a disciple of Christ. And so Mark 8:34, he says, 
and calling, or the Bible says, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come, and that's the exact same Greek word right there. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. So I believe what the readers of Mark should do here is connect both of those words and recognize that Jesus calls all of us to come to him, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him. And in this passage here, he tells the disciples, stop preventing the children from coming to me. Allow children to come to me just like I've invited other people to come. And he says, do not hinder them. This word hinder is another interesting word. It's actually an imperative, so a command, but this one is in the present tense. And so in other words, Christ's command was to continue beyond that moment. I think it was to continue beyond that event. So in in the future, don't hinder children from coming to me. And, And why is that? Well, he says, for such belongs the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God belongs to people who are like these children. And Jesus used these children, therefore, then as an illustration of faith. But also Jesus, I think, here was commanding the disciples not to prevent children from coming to him in faith. So Jesus doesn't just, Jesus doesn't just elevate the worth of ch- children, but Jesus elevates the priority of the church to disciple children. The church and each Christian must never do anything that would hinder a child from coming to Christ. So you could flip that around positively and say, we must do everything we can can to invite each child into the kingdom of God. I mean, think about it. In this room right here, the statistics say that probably about 70% or maybe more than that came to Christ before the age of 14 in this room. We think about that statistic. And what does that tell us? It tells us that reaching, reaching children for Christ actually is a very fruitful way to make disciples. And therefore, I think it's probably something that we should pursue as well. We should make disciples of all people. So let's look at this community and let's look at the people that are moving in from the Middle East and from India and from all these places and make disciples of them. And then also let's look at that demographic group of children and let's give them the gospel. Children are at a place in life that they are most receptive to the gospel. So therefore, let children come to him. Invite them to come to Jesus. Don't prevent them. So let's pray and encourage and urge children to repent and believe in Jesus. So what I, what I want to do just for a couple minutes is, is think through, like, what does that look like for us? Like, how do we sometimes hinder children from coming to Jesus? And how could we encourage children to come to Jesus. So I'm going to look at three categories. First, we're going to look at parents. Parents. Parents, first of all, must, must, take, must make discipleship of children their highest priority. Parents must make the discipleship of their children their highest priority. It's, it's not the church's job primarily to disciple your children. It's actually the responsibility of parents. That's the call of the scripture here. Christ has called us as parents, if you're a parent, to prayerfully and intentionally disciple your children. But sometimes parents, we actually can hinder our children from coming to Christ, can't we? Sometimes there's things that we can do that actually prevent them from seeing the gospel clearly and from seeing their need for Jesus clearly. Sometimes we can hinder, I think, Jesus 
We can hinder children from coming to Jesus by making other things a higher priority than Jesus. Sometimes I think we can neglect to live the gospel in front of our children and therefore prevent them from seeing Christ. Maybe, maybe we sin against our children. Maybe we, we yell at them or we, we hurt them in some way. And we don't come back to them and show them the gospel by, by confessing our sin and seeking forgiveness from them. Maybe we don't feed off the bread of the word ourselves. Maybe we, maybe we don't pray for our children. Maybe we don't pray with our children so they don't see that, that desire that we have for them to walk with the Lord. Maybe we, we don't make the gathering of God's people the highest priority and serving God's people as the highest priority. So, so parents, are sometimes we can do things that can hinder our children from coming to Christ. But you might say, well, well Pastor Ben, I don't know how. <laughs> I'm a parent, so you tell me how to disciple my kids because I don't know, okay? I hear that sometimes. So let's probably ask this question. What does the Bible say? Like, what are the instructions the Bible gives us? And so if you have children, take notes. If you don't have children yet and you're young enough that you might someday, take notes. If you're grandparents, probably take notes anyways, okay? So what does the Bible say? Well, first of all, you can see there in Matthew 22, it's in the Gospels. Jesus says this. Deuteronomy um, says this. Jesus is quoting actually Moses. Moses wrote this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all of your might. So, so first, to disciple your children, love God by his grace. Love God with all that you are. That's pretty simple, isn't it? Like you love God with your mind, with your soul, with all your being, with everything on your phone, right? With every part of your life, with every part of your person. No theological degree needed, no pastor position, you know, no rev in front of your name needed. Like, just by God's grace, love God. That's the first command. Actually, he doesn't just command that to parents. It's for all of us. And then, it's interesting, you think about this. The next verse in Deuteronomy says, these words, the words of God, the words of God's word, these words shall be in your heart. So you put in your heart... What you love. If you love God, you take his words and you put his words in your heart. And then what you love, God and his words, is what you will teach your children to love. And so that's what he says. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. So get this, parents, think about it this way. You put in your heart what you love. In fact, this is all of us in here. You put in your heart what you love, right? So just take something that's not sinful, okay? Let's take like sports, for instance, okay? So maybe you love the Dodgers. And not in a sinful way, okay? Unless you don't like the Dodgers, then maybe it is. But you love the Dodgers, okay? If you love that, then what do you put in your heart? Boop, it's on. Is it on today? Is there a game today? Does anybody know? There is. Okay, so there's someone who loves the Dodgers. That's great. And listen, it's not a sin. I'm just giving an example. But if you if you love the Dodgers, you're gonna you're gonna know the team. I don't know one player on the Dodgers. Okay, I couldn't even tell you where the stadium is. And okay, but if you love the Dodgers, you're going to put that in your heart, right? And what you love is what you'll teach your children to love. Hey, you want to come watch the game with me, right? You want to go to the game. You want to put on this hat, you know. And what you love and teach your children to love will shape your life and their hearts. And therefore, 
their life. So you can kind of see the progression here of how things work. That's really what the passage is saying here. You put in your heart what you love. So what, what do you love, parents? What do you love? Now I'm talking about things that replace God, right? What do you love? Money? Movies? Adventures? Laziness? I mean, there's things that we can say that these are the things that consume our life. What you love, you put in your heart. So if you love God, then you'll put his words in your heart. What you love and have in your heart, you will teach your children to love that too. And what you love and teach your children to love will shape your life your heart, but also their hearts and their lives. Starting this month, we have a program for children on Thursday nights, and it's Truth Trackers, and many of you know about it. And really, when we started this in 2005, when I created it, I really had the desire that parents could have tools to be able to take God's word and allow them to meditate on the word of God so they can have them in their heart. And not just for children to do it, so that parents could do it as well. So it's in, a, it's in a catechism format where there's a question asked. The answer is a Bible verse. So parents can ask their children the question. They can meditate and memorize that verse together. And so this isn't just a tool that we have at our church for fun. Really, parents, I want you and grandparents too to take these words and put them in your heart. It's a tool to help you. So if you have children 12 and under, let me encourage you in that. We actually, starting then, also in September, we'll take those verses and put them in the bulletin. You know why we do that? Not just for parents to keep track of them. So you can also take those verses. When I say you, I'm talking about the you church. (laughs) The plural, everyone in here can take those verses and put those in your heart. I think one of my favorite verses that wraps up our responsibility as parents. Take to heart all the words. That's God's words. I have solemnly declared to you this day so that you may command your children to obey carefully all the words of this law. Listen to this. They are not just idle words for you. They are your life. They are your life, parents. Parents, don't hinder your children from coming to Christ. You must carefully teach them the words of God. They are the words of life. And then church, how might we hinder children from coming to Christ? And and, on the flip side, positively, how can we encourage children to come to Christ? And I think the church must partner with parents in discipleship of children. We don't want to replace what parents are doing. We want to encourage and equip them. But we also want to, in some sense, partner with them. And I take this as a pastor very seriously. This is our job as a body of Christ. It's talking about all of us in here. So what can that look like for our church? I think... We must make sure that the ministries that we have are actually, are actually equipping parents to have discipleship tools to be able to disciple their children. So we have a number of, of programs, we might call them at our church, and those really are tools to help parents. And so the Tree Trackers, for instance, hopefully helps parents help their children memorize God's word and learn doctrine, what's true about God. We have a Sunday school curriculum that goes through the Bible, and so they teach that. And so we're in the children are in their classes learning that and adults are in their classes. So we have a time where it's separated and they they have a learn through the Bible on their level. We have a children's church for those who are struggling to stay in the service and they're taught to sit and listen to a lesson. Then they'll come and do that in our service here. We have a teen program that we are forming and our desire is to really help the teens 
study the Bible, and develop relationships with like-minded families and teens. So we want to have teens that develop relationships with like-minded other teens and also families together. And so tonight we're having parents and teens together because it's not a separate thing where we're saying parents can never be a teens, right? And they never should shadow the door. It's actually there to partner with parents. And then we'll have times where the teens will just be there and parents can come if they want to and they can leave if they want to. But the idea is that we are there to partner with those parents. I think also we can serve volunteering to be that other voice in the life of those children and those teens and those youth or that age group there. For some in the church here, the church is the only voice that's speaking into their life. And that's actually another great reason why we should have a healthy youth ministry and children's ministry here. Because there are some that are here and some that actually maybe not even coming right now and here right now. But they come once in a while and we are that voice of truth. And so you can volunteer to be that person. For some, it's just another voice that's speaking into the life of their children. I remember a parent coming to me once, a mom, and she said, it's frustrating, frustrating when my kids come home and they tell me what they learned. And they'll say something like, wow, God taught me something new today. And she's like, I just taught that to you last week, you know. But it's helpful sometimes to have someone else say the same thing, maybe in a different way or a different voice to help support that in the home. And so as a church, we must, we must never hinder children from coming to Christ. Let me just give a couple ways we might do that. I know I'm kind of harping on some things here. I think we, we need to make sure that we don't look at the nursery ministry that Donna's leading and the children's ministries as daycares or just childcare, like, and also not as a necessary evil. It's like, oh, the nursery. Oh, it's terrible. Like, actually, I get to serve God by serving children. And if you're a nursery worker, can I encourage you that while you're in there, make that a prayer room, right? So while you're changing a dirty diaper, you know, think of dirty sin in here. <laughs> you put the clean one on, think of that Jesus cleanses us. But the point is, think of that as a ministry of actually prayer. You can pray for us in here. You can pray for that little child like Jesus did. You can pray for our church. And so let's not look at it that way and don't treat people that, oh, I'm glad I'm not in the nursery anymore. Ha ha ha, aged out of that, you know. And I think also, like, I think we gotta be careful about shoving, shoving the call of discipleship to another generation. Honestly, I was a children's pastor and then a family pastor for many years. So I heard this over and over a bazillion times. Well, that's, that's exaggeration, by the way. <laughs> but, you know, you heard, you know, the, the children, the people who are younger would say, oh, I have children, and I don't want to see other people's children on Sunday. <laughs> you know, so I'm not going to do children's ministry. Then you have people that are like, you know, my children are teens. I'd rather be with them. Then you have people that are like, I already had children. This, the younger generation can do that. It's easy for all of us to have a reason why we should say, oh, let's shove this off, off on someone else. But we must actually take this up together as a church. More than a century ago, a great evangelist, D.L. Moody, was asked a question when he was leaving his event. How many people were saved tonight? And Moody replied, two and a half. And D.L. Moody's friend replied, you mean two adults and one child? And Moody Moody wisely replied, two children and one adult. So that one person was viewing that child as having less worth than the adult. But Moody understood that when a child comes to Christ, they have their whole life ahead of them. And last, quickly, missionaries. That's all of us in here. We should, as missionaries, encourage children to follow Christ. We should evangelize the children of our 
community. I, I believe the greatest impact that we can have on this valley is if we go out and we share the gospel and bring kids in to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, this, a couple weeks ago, I was at a camp speaking, and it was juniors, so it was basically 13 down to about 8 years old, maybe 7, 8 years old. Went through the whole gospel with them throughout the week, the story of redemption in the Bible. And it was, it's just wonderful to see children who have one belief system. So I think about a boy there that was an atheist. His parents did something at the Penn State University. I don't know if they were professors there or whatever, but he definitely was well-versed in atheism. Through the week, hearing the story of the scriptures, asking a lot of questions, really good questions that, frankly, probably most adults have not thought through, coming to the end of the week and saying, you know what? I want to give my life to Jesus Christ. And, and that, there's a power in the gospel that actually can change the life of a child for eternity. Charles Spurgeon said this in 1897, it's a couple years ago, he's a pastor in England. Let us never be guilty of forgetting the religious training of our children. And if we do, we may be guilty of the blood of their souls. And then last, or third, I should say, Jesus used children as an illustration. Look down in verse 14. When he saw it, he was indignant and he said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. For such belongs the kingdom of God. And so when Jesus views children, he sees the kind of people who will be in heaven. Now you might think, well, I know a lot of children. They're actually really sinful, okay? So Jesus wasn't highlighting that part of children. He was highlighting the idea of, of infants are receivers. Children generally are receivers. They are helpless, dependent little humans, right? And so Jesus used children to support this truth claim that it's impossible to get to heaven by any effort of your own. You must actually come to God as a child. Look at verse 15. He says, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God, and the idea of the kingdom of God is God himself, his presence. So whoever does not, whoever does not receive God like a child or an infant shall not enter into it. That's pretty emphatic, right? You will not Enter into God's presence unless you come to God like a child. And what's a child like? They're helpless. They're receivers. Think about a little child. Maybe think about a one-year-old child. I don't know. I was trying to think if there's any one-year-old children in this room here. Not in this room, but in this church. But is there any that I'm missing here? Anyone I can think of? Okay. I don't know. But picture this little one-year-old baby up here. Some of you are like, yeah, I can... At one of those in our family. But the child, that child contributes nothing to a family. Think about it. That child eats, but you have to feed it everything, right? And most of the time, they don't even want to open their mouth. Or sometimes, some of my kids didn't want to open their mouth. You have to do the little game where you're like, ooh, right? You have to trick them sometimes to eat or force them sometimes to eat. They, they poo their pants. Sorry to be a little graphic, but it's true. And you have to change them. They don't even care. Well, they might, then they scream their head off, but sometimes they don't care. Sometimes they even put their hand in it and they don't care, right? They can't talk, but scream and just babble. They can't go anywhere. And then when they start going somewhere, you have to lock everything down. So you, as a parent, provide everything for that child. They are completely 
dependent upon you. And so Jesus says this, this is the type of person that actually enters into my presence. Is a person who is completely dependent upon God for their spiritual provision. The only people in heaven are those who come to Christ, who came to Christ and followed him like helpless infants. Bible says, for by grace, you're saved through faith. And it is not of your own doing. That's right. So we believe God saves us by his grace alone, based upon the work of Christ alone. And then last, Jesus prayed for the children. Jesus prayed for children. Look at verse 16. Verse 16. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. This was no miracle that was taking place here. He put his hands on them and blessed them and prayed for them. In the Jewish home on on Fridays before Sabbath, the, the fathers would gather the children together and they would pray for each child. And the blessing of prayer would go like this. So they'd take a child, they'd put their hands on them and say, May God bless you and guard you. May God show you favor and be gracious to you. May God show you kindness and grant you peace. So that happened on a regular basis. So what Jesus was doing here was not out of the ordinary. There was something that fathers would do with their children. Of course, they were coming to him as a rabbi to do it. And again, this is, this is kind of where the tradition came, where churches will pray for children. So again, it's not a promise of salvation for that child. They're not in some kind of like, um, some kind of group that now gives them a guarantee they're going to be in heaven. But it's asking God to do a work in that child's life. But it's interesting, this, I don't think this was a ritual then for Jesus, though. If you look at the word blessed there in the Greek, you can see it's in the emphatic. And so this was a strong prayer of blessing. And Jesus demonstrated with his prayer the most, listen to this, the most important activity we can do with our children and for our children is... To pray is to pray. And parents and grandparents, when is the last time you took your child, you put your hand on them, and you prayed for them? There are a lot of books on discipleship. We offer a lot of tools about discipleship. We have programs for discipleship. There's a lot of effort in discipleship. But parents and grandparents and church and all of us missionaries, let's not forget to pray for the children. The salvation of your child is impossible. The salvation of your child is impossible in your own doing or even your child's own doing. It's impossible. But prayer accesses God's throne room to ask him to do the impossible work of salvation of saving a child's sinful, wicked soul by his powerful work of grace. So let's pray for our children. Remembering Christ's words, look down in verse 26. Who can be saved? Verse 27, Jesus looked at them and he said, with man, with parents, with grandparents, with yourself, it's impossible. But not with God, for with God, all things are possible. And church, would you commit in your heart to say, I 
want to pray for the children and the youth of our church here. And parents, would you pray for your children? Make that a regular part of your life. Let's pray. As we go into a time of silence and time of prayer before the Lord, I'll just invite you to bring whatever the Lord has taught you this morning before him in prayer. Maybe there's something you need to confess. Maybe there's something you need to ask for grace and help in. Come to the Lord right now and bring that before him. Maybe you're in here today as you are bowing your head now and you're thinking, I I have not really thought through that idea that it's impossible for me to earn my way to heaven. And I I know I need I need salvation. We would love to talk to you. And of course the Bible says you can call upon the name of the Lord at any moment. Trusting in his power and he can save you. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that Jesus loves people. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So I'm thankful, God. And I think we all as believers, we, we are thankful that in some really mysterious way and supernatural way, you, you look at us, you saw us, and you loved us and sent your son for us. And we believe you also love those children, those children in our homes, those children of this community. Frankly, there's, there's children who, across America right now, there might be mothers who are considering eliminating them, ending their lives in their wombs. So God, I pray for those mothers. I pray that God, you will... Maybe prick their conscience to not do that. Most importantly, I pray they'll, they'll look to you, Lord, and come to you. I think about even in our community here, just the pain that some mothers are facing and difficulty they're, they're facing. May they look to you as their Savior and Lord. We desire, as parents and grandparents as a church, we desire to reach children with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, I guess I don't know how to ask, Lord, but just give us opportunities for that. What does that look like? Ah, sometimes I don't really know. But I know you're powerful enough. You can do the impossible work of, of ordering our life and giving us opportunities to be able to give that gospel to them. And then we pray for the parents of this church. And may we as parents take very seriously the next 10 years of our children's lives. Thinking about that video this morning. Yeah, a four-year-old be 14, a 16-year-old be 26, and just how important it is right now, this week, to intentionally pray for our children and to disciple our children. And we can't do this because we are not because we are not able. We need we need your grace. We need your help. And so God, pour that out upon us. The powerful work of Jesus. We need that as parents in here. So God, do a great work in our church, through us, in us, through our children, in our children. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.